This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, I want to remind us that we're in between the the spring festivals of Passover and Pentecost. And this was so significant in the Jewish calendar, we being Gentiles don't totally understand the cultural implication of the realities that the Jews not only experienced but continued to celebrate through their generations. And as we've learned together that we will celebrate one day in the kingdom when Jesus establishes his throne in the earth. The Passover, looking back to Egypt, but looking forward to ultimately a Messiah who would redeem mankind from sin and sorrow. And then, 50 days later, four weeks, Pentecost. Not four weeks, seven weeks. Seven times seven, 49. Add 49 days to Passover and unleavened bread, it'll take us to the Feast of Pentecost, which was the first harvest. Now what happens is Jesus Christ is crucified on the eve of Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And three days later, he rises from the dead, but he doesn't ascend immediately into heaven. Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples. He's instructing and interacting with his chosen followers, his disciples, and he's preparing them for the great mandate that lies ahead. Wouldn't it have been fascinating to have experienced those 40 days with Jesus? Wouldn't you like to know what he said? To have heard his words? But the Bible primarily remains silent on those discussions. In fact, when he was on the road to Emmaus with a couple disciples who were saddened that their Lord had been crucified, and Jesus appeared to them and he opened the, the scriptures to them, and he, he started, and Moses and the prophets, and he told them all things that needed to be accomplished by the Messiah. And, and then he broke bread with them, and, and he shared, as he did in the Last Supper, he shared again the meal with them, and, and their eyes were opened, and they realized it was the Lord. And what did they say? They said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he broke the word and gave us insight into the Old Testament prophecies regarding himself? Does your heart burn with expectation as you hear the word of God, especially the words of Jesus? Of course, we're familiar with the directives that he gave. We've studied them together, that they should wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem, which was the empowerment by the Holy Spirit, and they were to wait in prayer, which they did, until the day of Pentecost fully came when the Holy Spirit fell on them. And he also gave them the great commission directives, which we've also studied together. In fact, we talked about it the last time I was with you. 
But this morning, I'd like to focus on some other last words of Jesus that I think sometimes we overlook. In fact, these are the last words that he uttered when he was on the cross, dying for our sins. These seven sayings or seven words hold invaluable meaning for us, and I think they, they, they help to clarify and develop our, our Christian theology today. Let me just ask you, what do you think about these words? Some of you probably aren't even familiar with what those words are, but as I enumerate them, I think they'll be familiar. But those of you that are familiar, what do you think about these words? Do you think Jesus really said them? Do you think they're really the words of God? What do you think when you read the, the Gospels and, and you hear the words of Jesus? As an aside, we are challenged in the New Testament to study, to show ourselves approved to God. Paul says we should be workmen that don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. The psalmist said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God has an interesting perspective on his word, doesn't he? And then again, in Psalm 119, David says, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We know Jesus hid the word in his heart because when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Satan tried to quote scripture to Jesus, and Jesus every time said, it is written. And he corrected a misinterpreted statement by Satan with what the Word of God really meant. And many times the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, they would say, well, the Word of the law says this, and Jesus would correct them. And then finally in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah writes, the Lord watches over his Word to perform it. If these things are true, the Word is really important, isn't it? But there's a difference this morning between a high view of Scripture and a low view. A high view embraces God's Word as inspired, as inerrant, and as infallible. We trust the Word of God. We live by the Word of God. But a low view of Scripture diminishes Scripture's importance. Oh, we have the Bible, but it's not that important. It claims that rather than being a historical record, the Bible is primarily fables, allegories, and even in the Old Testament, parables. What's a parable? It's a simple story conveying a spiritual truth or a spiritual lesson, but it's just a story. How many people have I met in my life when I quote scripture to them that's, that diminish the importance of those scriptures because they don't, don't have a high view of scripture. In fact, the seven sayings of Jesus Christ on the cross help us to understand the gospel that he came declaring and that he died to establish. Listen, on the subject of inerrancy, that the Bible is without error, we will find many so-called enlightened individuals, seminaries, 
clergy members, leaders in the church, in historic churches, historic Christian churches, who don't believe in the miracles of the Bible. They don't believe in the signs and wonders of Jesus. They don't believe those things recorded in the New Testament. Many do not believe in the resurrection. You know, the Ivy League schools were established as seminaries. These were the greatest seminaries in the world. Harvard and Yale. They, they were established to produce preachers to go to the ends of the earth. And they still have divinity schools, but generally if you attend those, you will learn what not to believe and what you'll not believe when you leave is generally the Bible. It's tragic. And then we have a similar viewpoint in the Catholic churches where they dilute and sometimes diminish the veracity, that means the truthfulness of the Word of God teaching instead the doctrines of men. And then we have the charismatic church that go far beyond what the Bible says, and they tell us it's based on revelation knowledge. God told me. I want you to understand this morning, I have a high view of Scripture. This is the Word of God. In fact, I was talking with an individual on this subject not very many days ago, and I said, this is the word. And he says, do you think that's the only words ever spoken by Jesus? Do you think that's the only things that ever God ever, ever inspired or said? I said, no, but these are the words that are written, that, that are written for us. He said, the Bible says that there are many other things that Jesus said, that if they were written, the, all the world's books could not contain. I said, that's not what it says. It says there are many other things that Jesus did if all of them were written. It's the last verse of the Gospel of John. John wrote that. There are many other things Jesus did. He said basically the signs and wonders, the works of Jesus that are recorded are the ones necessary. They're the ones that God gave us. He did a lot of other things. But it doesn't say there's a lot of other things that Jesus said. We know there's other things that he said. But the Bible doesn't tell us, oh, you're only getting a little bit of the picture here. The Bible tells us you can trust what you have, and you can build your life on it. This is so very important. So we need to be, beware and take heed. And I'm, in these introductory remarks, wanting to drive home the significance of our embracing the Word as God's Word. And as we listen to Jesus' words on the cross, they're Jesus' words. They're the words of God. Jesus is God in flesh dwelling among us. And when he speaks, I want to hear what he has to say. At, at one point, some Pharisees and teachers of, uh, of religious law arrived in Jerusalem. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 15. Just listen. And they asked Jesus, they said, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old traditions? And Jesus replied. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? What a profound statement. He said, you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. In other words, your teaching, your tradition, your dogma is more important to you than my word. And you cancel my word. 
He says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right about you. And he quotes Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as the commands of God. So let's be very careful that we're people of the word. Paul said it this way, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. What he said literally is Old Testament scripture is inspired or God-breathed. New Testament wasn't written yet. He says Old Testament scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. What is it profitable for? Here's what it's profitable for. Your doctrine for reproving or correcting, for correction, for instructions in righteousness, that the people of God may be what? Complete. The King James Version says perfect. The Bible is given so that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when someone says to me, well, there are other gospels, or there are other books, or, or there are other inspirations, or there are prophecies that show us a new and a living way, I say, wait a minute. This is enough. This is the Word of God that He gave us. And I hope you'll embrace that same point of view. For beware, by our traditions, we can make null and void the word of God. So what is the historical record as it relates to this cross? Well, it's simple, and you know it. Jesus was arrested, and he was chained, and he was falsely tried in the middle of the night into the early morning hours, and at 6 a.m., he was beaten, he was scourged, he was mocked, and he was forced to carry his own cross. He faced Caiaphas, the high priest, and the council, the Sanhedrin. He faced Pontius Pilate. Then he was shipped off to King Herod and then back to Pontius Pilate. All of this in the early morning hours. And he was sentenced to the cross. I want you to understand the cross was not a symbol of victory in the first century. It was not a symbol of Christianity, but it was rather a symbol of shame and humiliation and of torturous execution. You see, death on a cross wasn't death by crucifixion. Death on a cross was death by suffocation. And that's why people lived on crosses after they had been sentenced for up to three days. Christ's crucifixion begins at 9 a.m. in the morning, the third hour. And darkness covers the earth, the Bible says, at noon, the sixth hour, and lasts until 3 p.m., the ninth hour when Jesus died. And so I want to go through quickly the, the crucifixion narrative. In order to do so, what I've done is I've put together a chronological 
gospel account. I went through all the gospels the last couple weeks, and I want to give you an order, skipping back and forth from the different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers. Gospel means good news. It's the declaration of Jesus' life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. And so we'll start with the first slide, and we're going to move through these quickly. You can close your eyes and listen, or you can watch as we go through these. Luke 23, verse 32 is where it begins. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Next slide, Mark 15. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days? Next slide. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, and among themselves they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Next slide. And Jesus said, Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and even the rulers sneered at him. And they said again, he saved others but can't save himself. Next slide. The soldiers also came up, and they mocked him, and they offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then there was a written notice above him which read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Next slide, John 19. Pilate had a notice prepared, and he fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was just outside the city. And the sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests and the Jews, they protested to Pilate, and they said, next slide, do not say or write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Next slide. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. Next slide. He says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deed deserves. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, as he looked at Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Next slide, John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple, John, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time, the disciple, John, took her into his home. Next slide, Luke 23. It was now about noon. 
And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Next slide. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Next slide. Later, knowing that everything now had been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and they put it on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and they lifted it up, next slide, to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Next slide. Jesus called with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Next slide. And when the centurion of Rome, who stood there in front of Jesus, he'd overseen the entire event from the arrest to the scourging to the crucifixion, he stands guard now, And he saw how Jesus died, and he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Next slide. There was a great earthquake. The rocks split. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Thank God for his word. So now... I want to put up a slide showing you the seven statements of Jesus on the cross. Look at them. There are seven of them. Number one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not only what he says is significant, but the order. The third, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The fourth, Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth, Jesus cries out, I thirst. The sixth, it is finished. The seventh, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, before we look at them quickly, one at a time, let me just make a couple observations. First, all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contribute to the last words of Jesus on the cross. I want you to notice that three times he says, Father. He says, my God, my God. And again, he says, Father. It indicates that on the cross, Jesus was preoccupied as he had been throughout his life with his relationship with God, the Father. And then, notice this. There is an ever-narrowing of the focus of Jesus as he shares these words. His attention is on different things. First, he focuses on his executioners. He focuses on the lost sinners. Second, he focuses on a fellow sufferer, the thief. Next, He focuses on his mother. And then and only then, after 
He's focused on these other groupings. He finally focuses on himself. Only after the needs of others had been addressed did Jesus think of his own situation. And we know that clearly the mind of Jesus was saturated in Scripture as he hung on the cross. He was meditating on many messianic passages. Isaiah 53, a number of places in the Psalms, but especially Psalm 22. You might jot that down and read that later, Psalm 22. I won't read it this morning, but Jesus is contemplating these things as he lives out the prophecies of himself. Now let's examine each of these last sayings of Jesus. Number one, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. Now think about it. When was, the, when was the first time Jesus really talked about forgiveness? Well, as I read the Gospels, I think it was on the Sermon on the Mount, a beautiful spring day above the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples sit down in the crowds, and Jesus stands up, and he teaches, and he says, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. And now we see him on the cross, and what we see is the teacher modeling his teaching. You ever had a teacher that taught well but didn't follow his own advice? Well, that's human, but that's not Jesus. In Isaiah 53, the great prophecy by Isaiah regarding the suffering servant. Isaiah says in verse 12, he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's interceding on the cross for his enemies. He's praying for the people who've just beat him, scourged him, put nails through his hands and his feet, fashioned a crown of thorns from a gourd, winding it together, pounding it into his head, thorns this long, and he's interceding for them. His first prayer was for his enemies. It's amazing how this catches on because in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter stands up to preach. And in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was accredited to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you. Peter's preaching, and he says, he was handed over to you. And I believe that Peter probably, because he'd been, he'd been in the garden when he was, Jesus was arrested. He'd been in the courtyard. And I think Peter saw some of the soldiers, and Peter knew some of the priests. And Peter points out at the crowd, and he says, you, and you, you were there. You participated with the help of wicked men, and you put him to death by nailing him on the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. When the people heard this, including some that were there, including some that participated, they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It says they were cut to the heart. And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Bible says about 3,000 people did it. They committed their lives to Christ, and some of them were people who participated in putting him to death. Some of them were the people in the crowds yelling, crucify him. We want Barabbas. We don't know who this king of the Jews is. Crucify him. And now they're repenting. Why? Because Jesus interceded for the transgressors. First thing he did on the cross. First things he says, Father, forgive them. You know what? Jesus could see you and me. He could look down through the centuries because he could see the whole world. And he saw you. And he saw me. And he knows what we've done. And he knows what we'll do. And he said then, and he offers now, Father, forgive them. As a Christian, how could I sin knowing what I know? But if I stumble and I fall, he's saying, forgive him. Forgive them because he intercedes for the transgressors. And so who responds? Well, we know a thief on the cross responds. We know that to be true. Right there on the cross, somebody responds. What about the centurion? Now, we don't know that the centurion got saved that day, but the centurion was witness. The centurion had seen hundreds, if not thousands, of executions. He was in charge. He was in charge of the Roman soldiers that, that brought the execution down as Pilate gave the order. Day after day, criminals were executed and the centurion was in charge. And the centurion had never seen anything like this before. He had never seen anything like Jesus. Everyone else on their cross, they're cussing, they're cursing, they're sneering, they're spitting. Jesus, like a lamb to the slaughter, before his shearers is silent, he doesn't open his mouth. He's on the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, and the words out of his mouth, as he musters all the strength as he can, because you know he's been scourged. He's been reduced literally to raw hamburger. Isaiah says in 53, you couldn't even recognize him. That's how beaten up he was. And somehow, he takes a deep breath and says, Father, forgive them. And the centurion says, I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen the, the clouds cover the region. I've never seen or heard the earthquake. I've never seen the stones crack. In fact, I heard, I heard a rumor that just a week ago, he rode into town on a donkey. And the religious leader said, to his followers, tell, the, tell all the people to be quiet and quit saying Hosanna to this, this imposter. And I heard that this man, Jesus, said, if the crowds are quiet, the rocks themselves will cry out. And on this day, after an earthquake, the rocks break open. Creation responds to its creator. 
And the centurion is blown away. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, early Christian tradition tells us that the centurion committed his life to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and lived the rest of his days as a Roman believer. Praise God. But that is a tradition. The word doesn't state it specifically. And then there's even Pilate. Pilate's wife's just a mess. She says, I've suffered many things about this man in a dream. Don't do anything with him. Pilate says, I know this man is innocent. I see you guilty of no wrongdoing. Jesus doesn't answer much to Pilate, and Pilate knows that the crowd pressured by the religious leaders, by the, the high priests and the council, they're wanting blood. And so Pilate assumes that if he has Jesus flogged, if he has him scourged, that'll be enough, and the crowd will back off. So 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails, pieces of bone, metal, glass, on the whip with leather straps. And the point was to put that whip into the body of the person being punished and to twist it and to lock in those pieces and then rip flesh loose. Most people died in scourging. Jesus didn't. He's a strong man. But Pilate, having had him scourged, brings him out. He says, behold the man, thinking that they'll be satisfied. And they said, no. Away with him. Crucify him. And so Pilate washes the hands. He's, he says, I wash my hands of the blood of this innocent man. And he has a sign made to put above the cross, above Jesus' head. And he says, write this, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Three languages. And the religious leaders are incensed. They say, you need to change that. And Pilate says, what's written is written. But literally what he said is, what I've written will always be written. Wow. And it is to this day. The point is, pray for the lost. We talked about it last time I was here. Pray for the lost, because God loves the lost. He wants to give the ends of the earth to us as his inheritance. He's still in the business of winning souls one at a time. Pray for your friends. Pray for your family. You say, I'm not going to. I invited him for Easter. They didn't come. They, they, they get mad every time I bring up Christianity and my faith in Jesus. Don't give up. Just keep telling them. Just keep loving them. Look for opportunities. Pray for the lost. Two men are held to their crosses by their nails. Jesus is held to the cross by his love, his love for you and me. The second saying on the cross, with a criminal on one side, another criminal on the other, he says, truly I say to you, Today you'll be with me in paradise. These are not simply thieves. You know, the Romans didn't crucify thieves. They crucified murderers. They crucified insurrectionists. They crucified individuals that would stir up the crowd and attempt to overthrow the Roman government. So these were, these were bad guys. 
not simply thieves, but one of them believes on the spot. Now, what's interesting, and people that don't believe God's word will say, well, you know, the Bible contradicts itself because it says that they both railed on Jesus. And I read it to you. They both did rail on Jesus. Both of them said, well, you know, save yourself, save us. Both of them did. But one of them had a change of heart right there on the cross. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. He was angry. He was frustrated. Not Jesus, the thief. But when Jesus said, Father, he turned and he looked. He looked into the eyes of Jesus, swollen though they were. His mouth, I'm sure, misconfigured, barely getting the words out. He looked. First he railed on Jesus, and now he responds to Jesus. Anybody here like that? Were you once a critic of Christianity? Any one-time atheists here? Any one-time agnostics? Any religionists here? That God changed, and we surrendered. That was my testimony. How long does it take to get saved? Does it take a year? Does it take a month, a week? Does it take a day, an hour? No. You can instantly be saved. You know what I think happened? I think the thief on the cross looked into the eyes of Jesus. He saw this man. And he said, I don't want anyone else. He said, I don't want to have anything else. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I don't want anything else. That's what happened on the cross. And it was not based on works of righteousness that he had done, but according to God's mercy that he saved him. That's what Paul says. Did you know he wasn't even baptized? Wonder how many of you have a theological problem with that. Wasn't even baptized in water, can't be saved. Talking to a friend of mine. We were talking about being born from above. He said, I don't like those born-agains like it's a denomination. I don't like those born-again Christians. The thief on the cross was never born again. That's what he said. I said, are you serious? To be born again is to be born of the Spirit, to be born from above. Jesus says, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Do you know what happened when the thief looked at Jesus and said, I don't want anyone else but you, Jesus? Remember me when you come into your kingdom? You know what happened? He was born from above right there on the cross. <laughs> Amazing. And Jesus looked at him and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jonathan Edwards was a revivalist during the formation of America. He was a preacher along the eastern seaboard, had huge revivals. Listen to what he said. He said, you contributed nothing to your salvation 
except the sin that made it necessary. Wow. There's nothing I can add. Nothing. Nothing. You mean I don't have to be good? You couldn't be good enough. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. Number three. You see, standing at the foot of cross of the cross with Jesus is his mother, Mary. Mary is one of the most misunderstood people by many. Some say we should pray to Mary. That we pray to Jesus through her. Some say that Mary was sinless at birth. It's called the Immaculate Conception. Others believe that Mary also ascended into heaven. Some people teach that Mary had no other children, only Jesus. She was a perpetual virgin. None of these things are taught in the Bible. They are what we call dogmas or traditions. Tens and tens and tens of millions of people believe them to be true, but they're not found in your Bible. High view of Scripture. You see, Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Joseph and Mary had multiple children. Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, the children of Joseph and Mary. But please understand, we do not want to miss the significance of Mary. She was handpicked by God to carry the Messiah in her womb. Joseph is not Jesus' father. Jesus has no earthly father. That's the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. And the child she was found with would be the Son of God. And Mary loved her son, Jesus. You realize that? She's looking at her son. She can't even recognize him. And she's there with so much compassion. Most of the men had run for their lives. You realize that, right? John's there and a group of women. The rest of the apostles, they're hiding. And there's Mary. She loved her son, Jesus. And do you know, Jesus was her best son ever. In fact, Jesus was the best son ever. Do you realize that? You say, oh, Jim, you're just extrapolating. No, Jesus was the best. He was tested in every way, just like we are, and he yet never sinned. There was never guile found in his mouth. Did you know Jesus was perfect in every way? He wasn't a model child. He was the model child. Probably to their kids, Joseph and Mary said, you, you all need to be a little bit more like Jesus. Ah, Ma, he's perfect. Literally was. Cute, but true. And there she is, watching her son murdered in cold blood right before her eyes. 
In fact, when they took Jesus to dedicate him after he was born to the temple, two prophets waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah. God had told them they wouldn't die until they had seen the Messiah. Simeon and Anna, and they both speak over Jesus. But Simeon says to Mary, after talking about what Jesus will do, Simeon says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And indeed it did. And yet her firstborn son, Jesus Christ, Joseph is not here. We assume he's probably dead. But Jesus is the firstborn, and so he cares for his mother. You know, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. It was James that later believed and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But the brothers and sisters rejected him. You can read about it in the gospel records. They thought he was mad. So Jesus just doesn't turn him over to the brothers and sisters. John is there with Mary, and Jesus says, Woman, behold your son, son, John, behold your mother. He entrusted the care of his mother to John, and she moved in and stayed with John until she died. Amazing. He takes care of his mother. Number four. Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's 12 o'clock. Suddenly, clouds cover Golgotha and the region about, and Jesus cries out. This was probably Christ's most painful moment on earth. Do you remember Jesus' first recorded words? The first thing Jesus ever said. He was 12 years old. Do you remember? He'd gone to Jerusalem with his parents. They were there for a feast. They're getting ready to leave. They see Jesus over there with the teachers of the law. What's he doing? He's listening and he's asking them questions. And they're amazed at his wisdom. And his parents assume that he's come along. He's with the other kids, with the cousins, with his brothers and sisters, and they, they're heading back to Galilee. They're heading out of town. Half a day out of town, they realize Jesus isn't with them, and they go back, and they find him there. He's still there in the temple with the teachers of the law. He's 12 years old, wise beyond his years. They say, why did you do this to us? Jesus responds, his first words, why did you seek me? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And now on the cross, he cries out to his father. I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your dad. I didn't have a great one with mine. He's gone now. I'm thankful he gave his life to Christ before he died, but we had a rough go of it. But Jesus didn't have a rough go with his father. Already in the garden, he said, not my will, father, but yours be done. He knew why he'd come, and he's going to go to the cross. And he'd come to do his father's business, which was to reconcile the world back to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My God, I feel abandoned. Because at that moment, 12 o'clock, the weight of the sins of the world were laid upon the shoulders of Jesus, the sin, the shame of everyone who ever was or ever will be, because Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. 
and he cries out, my God, my God. Some have speculated that, that God turned his back on his son because he couldn't bear to see him in this horrific suffering state. Others say it was just because the sin of the world was laid upon him. But Jesus feels forsaken. But he's come to do, it's written in the volume of the book, your will, O God. He completes it now. While many of us turn our back on God when we go through suffering and difficulty, how many people do you know when it doesn't go their way, they just say, I'm giving up on this, this church thing. You'll not see me darken the doors of a church again. You won't hear me praying to God. I don't even know if I believe in God. Nobody's been through it like Jesus. And what does he do? He cries out to God. That's what you need to do when you're in trouble. Turn to him. Turn back to him. Jesus turns to the Father. Even though effectively God was placing all the sin of the world on his son. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Number five, it's dark. Jesus is alone, and he cries out, I thirst. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 21. A lot of people look at it a lot of different ways, but the reality is Jesus was a man. He was fully God and fully man. He was dehydrated, and he really was thirsty. But it is also Jesus who has told us earlier, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Because he who believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus gives that living water to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus is the water of life. And yet he says he thirsts. He's also meditating on Psalm 22 that talks about this, this vinegar that they would give him. But it tells us clearly that Jesus was aware of the prophecy. It says, Jesus, in order to fulfill all things, think about it, Jesus is going to fulfill every, every, every jot and every tittle, dot every I, cross every T. And so he cries out, I thirst. And they bring him on a sponge, the vinegar, touch it to his lips. Jesus knows the Messiah would cry out these words as he gives his life as a substitutionary death. I think the real question this morning is, do we thirst? Do you thirst? Because if you do, come to Jesus and drink. You'll never be the same. Number six, almost done. It is finished. Interesting statement. It is finished. He cries out. It's a Greek word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It literally means paid in full. The work of salvation is complete. Jesus is declaring, the work that I came to do is now finished. 
It is finished. Now, it's interesting to me what believers do with this passage. The Apostles' Creed of the 3rd and the 5th centuries states that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and he rose again from the dead on the third day. Many people recite that creed every time they go to church all over the world. But that's not what the Bible says. Let's go back to a high view of Scripture. Jesus didn't descend into hell. And here's the problem. We have this little phrase, he descended into hell. And I'll clarify what they meant when they said it and what it means in a second. But what people have done with that statement is they've written books, popular books, in the history of particularly the charismatic movement. One that comes to mind, what happened from the cross to the throne? What happened to Jesus between dying on the cross and sitting down at the right hand of God? We got three days and three nights. What did he do? What happened? And entire theologies have been built upon what Jesus did. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly. But these teachers tell us that Jesus descended into hell in order to be punished by and to pay a further price to Satan for the sins of the world. Now think about this. Now, what it does mean, Jesus did preach to the Old Testament saints in Hades. You remember Abraham's bosom? You remember there was a chasm and there was Abraham and righteous saints of the Old Testament on one side, and there's this big gulf, and on the other side were people that were suffering, and one said, one said to Abraham, just, you know, dip your finger in the water, put it on my tongue because I'm in torment. See, in the Old Testament, when you died, you didn't go directly to heaven, even though, even though you believed, because we're waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. He's going to open the way to heaven. Jesus went to Hades, and he preached to the captives. They were held captive there, but they weren't held by the devil. There's a place prepared for the devil. It's called the lake of fire, the devil and his angels. But when the Bible speaks of hell in this sense, or Hades, it's speaking about the place where Individuals were awaiting judgment. Now, when Jesus died, he went and preached to them. They received Jesus. And then Paul says that when he ascended and he gave gifts to men, he took captivity captive. He took them to heaven. Jesus took them all, all those righteous of the Old Testament. He took them to heaven. That's what Jesus is doing. But there's a whole doctrine that says that Jesus was being beat up in hell by Satan. His body's in the tomb, and in his spirit, he goes to hell to die. That's what they teach. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 says. Moses is telling the children of Israel, he said, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor shall you take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Don't add and don't subtract. Don't tell me the Bible isn't true, and don't rewrite the Bible. 
Don't give me another testament. And don't introduce new revelation theologies. I'm not going to give you the name of the currently living false teacher who shares these words, but I'm quoting him. Jesus allowed the devil to drag him into the depths of hell as if he were the most wicked sinner who ever lived. Every demon in hell came down on Jesus to annihilate him. They tortured him beyond anything anybody has ever conceived. Then God spoke, and literally Jesus was reborn before the devil's very eyes. Jesus then dragged the devil up and down the halls of hell. Where in the Bible is this? Jesus was raised up, listen to this, as a born-again man. The day I realized a born-again man defeated Satan, I got so excited, end of quote. And he goes on to teach believers, he and his movements, teach that you too have the same power and authority that Jesus has in the earth. Let me tell you, we are not Jesus. I believe in the authority of the believer, and I believe in prayer, and I believe in, in confession, and I believe God's word and that God will honor it. But when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished, do you know what? It was finished. He didn't say, I'm finishing. He said, Tetelestai, the debt has been paid. What was the price of the debt? It was that innocent, sinless individual had to die. And in dying, he took the sins of those who were not innocent. That's you and me. But did Jesus really say Tetelestai? See, Tetelestai is Koine Greek common Greek. In fact, Jesus spoke Aramaic. The word that Jesus probably said, according to Bible scholars, he probably said, he probably cried out, Shalem! You say, it sounds like something I've heard before. Shalem! What does it remind you of? Shalom! The Hebrew word shalom Aramaic was a form of Hebrew. And shalem is the passive form of shalom. Shalom means peace. But shalem means peace has been accomplished. That's what Jesus cried out. Paid in full. Peace with God through Jesus has been passed present and into the future. It's accomplished. It's done. <laughs> Paid in full. And last of all, number seven, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid of death. Ever been afraid of death? I remember when I was a kid, I used to have horrific nightmares. I still believe it had something to do with the spiritual call that was on my life. But I would wake up. I would wake up. I would have the most horrendous demonic dreams. 
I would wake up on my mom's lap. She said often I would get up. I was terrified. I would go out the front door. I would leave the house. They would have to go and grab me. I was sleepwalking, but I was terrified. I did it regularly. I would wake up sobbing. And I remember telling my mom, I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die. Afraid of death. A lot of adults afraid of death. Jesus wasn't afraid to die. He trusted his father. And you and I can trust his father too. Stephen was a young man who was called to be a deacon in the early church. And it's recorded in Acts 6 and 7. And he was a great preacher, just a young man, just full of vigor for God. And he preached, and many of the Sanhedrin argued with him, and he just went off on them, quoting Old Testament passages and telling them that they'd crucified Jesus. And they were so upset, they decided to stone him. That's a tough way to die. It's not the cross, but it's a tough way to go. And so he's stoned for his faith, Acts chapter 7, in the presence of Saul of Tarsus. And they say as he was preaching, his face, it glowed like the face of an angel. And it says, as they stoned him, Stephen saw the glory of God. He looked up, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father. Not sitting on a throne, he's standing, looking down on Stephen. And while they were stoning him, Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold the, this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Jesus on the cross cries out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the Bible doesn't say he died. It said he fell asleep. It's only of believers that the New Testament speaks of our passing as sleep. Just go to sleep and wake up in the presence of Jesus. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the invitation today is simple. Death died when Jesus rose, and you don't have to fear death. Maybe you're not sure if you'd go to heaven if you died tonight, but how about being sure you can know today? Let's all stand up. Get a little stretch in. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Jesus, the word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. We surrender our lives to you, Lord, and we do not fear death, for we, like Stephen, we will commit ourselves into your hands should we have that opportunity to communicate, to interact before we die. We do, we do know, Lord, that some of us, the time of our death, it may surprise us, the mode of our death. Many of us have said, well, I'll make 
I'll make my peace with God at that moment, in that hour. But Lord, help every one of us to realize we don't necessarily have that luxury. Today is the day of salvation, and I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, under the sound of my voice, that they would surrender to you, Lord Jesus, you who is life, life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.